Welcome to the American Experiment Podcast. I'm John Hinderocker, joined today by Martha Ninjolamoli, economist at Center of the American Experiment. Martha, uh, I, I really want to talk today about your experience and, and your background, because it's really, it's really interesting and it's really unusual. So let's just start out uh, with your you know, growing up. You, you grew up in Africa, right? Yes, so I grew up in Africa, specifically in Malawi. So this is a country in southeastern Africa. We're surrounded by Mozambique to the southeast, and then we have Zambia to the west, and then Tanzania up north. So we're pretty much uh, landlocked, so that's where I grew up. Uh, interestingly enough, though, for such a small country, we have about 20 tribes, so everybody has their own language. And then we have the national language, which is what I spoke for the uh, most part growing up in Malawi. And then I came to this country in 2013 to... Uh, go to college in Troy, Alabama. Okay, well, we're going to get to that in a minute, but I want to stay with Malawi for a few minutes because <laughs> it's pretty interesting. So Malawi is a small country in southeastern Africa. So what's it like? I mean, is it jungle? Is it prairie? What is it? Uh, I would say for the most part, it's, it's prairie. Uh, but I grew up in one of our urban cities, so I wasn't growing up in much of the, you know, the agricultural parts of the country. So I grew up in a city that we call Blantyre. So this is an English name, actually. It's, it was named after some Scottish city by some British explorers. I don't really know who. <laughs> but I grew up, before then it used to be called Kabula. So we had a Chichewa name, but then they changed it to Blantyre. So I grew up in the outskirts of Blantyre. So we have what we call matrimonial uh, kind of system whereby a lot of the families tend to live together and they tend to live is the, at the mom's side of the family. So when I was growing up, my whole family used to live together, my great-grandmother, my grandmother, or my uncles, aunts, whoever you name it. So we all grew up around the same time. So I could wake up today and go to my grandmother's house in like two minutes. I go to my great-grandmother's house, another two minutes go to my uncle's house. So that was the kind of life that I I grew up in. I didn't travel a lot because I, I didn't have anywhere to go because all the people I knew are there. I travel a bit for school, you know, just walking every day back and forth, but that was also kind of close. So for the for the most part, I would say that I started traveling after I came here. I didn't see a lot of Malawi, but yeah, it was just me, my family, Blantyre. So, so one of the things that makes me feel really old, Martha, is you told me one time that you you have a grandmother who is younger than I am. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder you got all these people living together. The generations are not all that far apart. Yeah. So funny thing, actually, I'm not sure what her exact age is. So, because she doesn't remember when she was born, and I had a grandma grandmother that passed away a couple months ago too, and I wasn't even sure how old she was, but she was in the 80s. Yeah. So my grandmother, I think, should be in her late 60s or so. So, so Minnesota uh, is known for its lakes more than anything else. Malawi also has a a, a really big lake, right? Yes. So we have Lake Malawi. Well. But before it used to be called Lake Nyasa, so pretty uh, funny story. So when the white European visitors first came to Malawi, because that was where they I came. I like that, the white European visitors. Yes, I <laughs> mean, good. I'm not sure if they had <laughs> if they had Europeans of other races, but these ones were white, yes. So when they came through, so they came through Shiri River. So this is the river that flows from Lake Malawi, and then they went up 
uh, to Lake Malawi, which starts at the very top of the country and goes all the way down south. So when they met the people in that part of the region, they asked them what they call the lake. So the people in that uh, part of the region are called the Yao people. So this, this is, they speak to Yao, they're called the Yao people. So in Yao, lake actually means Nyasa. So when they asked them, what do you call this? They said, oh, we call it Nyasa. But then the white Europeans assumed that that was the name of the lake. So actually they called it, oh, this is Lake Nyasa, which basically translates to Lake Lake. <laughs> but then that's what we used to call it for the most part of the, the uh, history until about 1964 when we became independent from uh, Britain. So then we turned it to Lake Malawi. So Malawi means flames. And I think the story behind it is that if you are in Mozambique and you're looking over Lake Malawi, but if the sun is coming up, it looks like flames of fire or something like that. So that's where the name comes from. So there's a lot of rich history behind uh, that name. But yes, the so the lake covers about a quarter of the country. It's it's pretty big. I've been there about two, three times myself, but I'll, I'd love to go again because it's, it's one of our most uh, visited places in Malawi. That with Molange Mountain. So, so Martha, I think you said that 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 there are like twenty different tribal languages in in this rather small country, and then there's one language that's kind of the national language. Is that the one that you grew up speaking? Yes. So I grew up speaking Chichewa. That's what we call it. So the way you name languages in Malawi, it's after the tribes. So, for example, you have the, the tribe I mentioned earlier, Yao, so then their language is Chiao. And then Chichewa is for the Chewa tribe, which is the, the, the major tribe in Malawi. But my family is actually from the Yao tribe, but they moved away from that part of the country that speaks Chiao. So then we, we moved to the city where then everybody speaks Chichewa, so then that's what we picked up. So that's what I was speaking. But actually my mom, my grandmother, and some of my older relatives, they actually do speak Chiao. I can understand it, but I can't speak it. So you so, also grew up, though, at some point reading English, right? Uh, yeah, so our education system is pretty much in English because we were colonized by the British. So, you know, they came up, they set their schools. So all the way from Nazari, to say college pretty much the whole system is in english so when i was going to i guess what you call print kindergarten here because we call it nazarene reception in malawi so kindergarten primary school which is elementary school here and then secondary school which is high school here all the way everything is taught in english except for we take the official language too as a, as a subject much like how you do english here you take it as a class and in school, so yeah, you can take Chichewa as a subject, but almost everything else, pretty much everything else is in English. So at some point, and this, I've never quite understood this, Martha, when you were 16 years old, you came to the United States, is that right? Yes, that was the first time I ever left Malawi, and it was to come here, so my flight was about 30 hours. <laughs> so, so um, well, let's back up for a little bit, though. How did you, how were you able to come to the United States as a 16-year-old kid. Yeah, this is, uh, wow, I've told this story so many times because it still sounds surreal to me, the way it, it happened, actually. I still don't believe it. It's not something I plan to do. I actually wasn't even applying to colleges here. But what happened, essentially, is that we used to have this program in Malawi. I think we still have it. It's, it was introduced by this radio station in Malawi called Zodiac. 
So Zodiac was trying to motivate girls to do well in school because there's this huge discrepancy between boys and girls in Malawi. Boys, girls tend to drop out or just get pregnant or something like that. So what the radio station did was they introduced this award system so that when you graduate high school and you do well on your national exams, like if you're maybe first position, second position, this is for the whole country, they will give you a scholarship to China. So they had this arrangement with the Chinese embassy to give scholarships to girls. But what happened that year was that me and two other girls had seven points, which is like the second position uh, for the national exams. We were invited to that ceremony. They were just going to give us gifts. But then the president was female, so she had taken over from our late president who died in 2012. The president of Malawi? Was, was, yeah, was yeah. a woman. So she, so she was the guest of honor during that ceremony. So she was, I guess she was impressed by us. So she found somebody to sponsor us for school in the United States. So that's actually how I, I came here. So it was, I guess, like you would say, I don't know. So yeah, so by virtue of being the runner up, you got yes, to come to I the United to, States yeah, so instead of to China, China which yeah. was a very, a very lucky, lucky break for you. Mm -hmm. So, so you get on the airplane and you fly for 30 hours, uh, obviously not a direct uh, nonstop flight, no. and you wind up uh, ultimately at Troy University in Alabama, which is where you had the scholarship to study. Now, did you know at that point that you wanted to study economics? Yes, I did actually, uh, very interesting. So I, I, I've always loved to read since I was a kid, uh, but you know, I didn't have books at home. <laughs> So what I used to read was really newspapers thrown around everywhere. So I'm just walking around, you know, taking up all these pieces of torn newspapers to read. And we didn't have a TV at my house growing up, so we only had uh, radio. So a lot of times when I read these newspapers or when I listen to the radio, one thing always, you know, was always on the news, which is like, oh, our government is requesting aid from the UK or the United States gave us a couple million dollars for this, this and that. And of course, I knew that we were poor, both in my house and as a country, but then I didn't really realize the level of the difference between a country like the US and Malawi. And because when I grew up too in Malawi, uh, most of the services that I used were provided by the government. So I went to a government school. Every time I got sick, I went to a government hospital. Uh, if I wanted to get water, the government would come connect the water. So in my mind, I thought, well, we have all this government that's doing all of these things, but you know, it's obviously not doing a very good job. So what I'm going to do is study economics so that I can come and work for the government so that I figure out if there's anything that they, they can do to improve. So coming to the United States, I, I wanted to study economics because I wanted to work for the government because I figured that was the only way that I could improve, help improve the system in Malawi. So, I so one of the things you told me, Martha, is that when you were growing up in Malawi, people would sometimes post signs on their land saying that it's not for sale which is kind of weird. I mean, yeah. in the U.S., we might put up a sign saying, this land is for sale, <laughs> but you would never put up a sign saying, this land is not for sale. And the reason for that, as I understand it from what you told me, is because they don't have a register of deeds system in Malawi. So you don't have a clear record of who owns the property. No, no, you don't. And the reason for that is because uh, Malawi is very traditional. Uh, like I've mentioned earlier, you know, for myself and my whole family, we live 
all at the same place and we have this land that, that is clan land essentially so i know my mom has a piece of land when i was young actually i used to have a piece of land that i was farming on but i was too lazy most of the time so i never really finished all of the work but you know pretty much everybody i know has some piece of land that they can farm on or build their house so you can't really take clan land and go register it because then you get into all sorts of conflicts so that's how most of the land is so people never really get to register so you have to be really careful when you buy you buy a piece of land because you have to make sure that the person that's selling it to you actually owns it so the way that people do this is usually they go to the village chief and then you know he's the you know, it's not like he has a record either himself. He's just like a witness saying, well, I saw this person take this land and sell it to somebody else. And then even if you do that, you have to put up a sign saying this land is not for sale because there have been a couple instances of people buying land and then somebody will come up and say, actually, that person who sold it to you doesn't own this land. So somebody will build a house and they will have somebody come and say, actually, no, you have to demolish this piece of land because it's the person who sold it to you doesn't own it. Stuff like that has actually uh, happened. And I think it's just a sign of a bigger issue with having an ineffective government or maybe a fully developed effective government yet, like what you have here in the United States. So, so <clears throat> at age 16, you find yourself at Troy University in Alabama studying economics. And who are some of the economists that you started to study then who, who influenced you? So I, Troy University has this, uh, it's sort of like a research organization, it's a small research organization called the Johnson Center for Political Economy. So that's where we do a lot of our free market research and it's heavily influenced by the Austrian School of Economics. So I don't know if anybody who is familiar, there's a lot of- uh, It would be Hayek, for Hayek, example. Yeah, Friedrich Hayek, so Ludwig von Mises. So those were the kinds of people that I, I studied. I also studied Keynes, of course, but that was more of see what he did wrong and see what these other people did right. <laughs> so you had, is, you, had, you had sound professors then. Yes, yeah, so it's more like right this is who you should avoid and that these are the people to follow, which would be the hike, you know, uh, Mises, uh, stuff like that. So you, you, uh, did, you got your four-year degree at Troy University, and then you stayed on and got a master's degree in economics, right? Yes, I did. And I don't want to embarrass you, Martha, but you're very good at math. Uh, well, thank you. You know, you you can do things I can't do, like multiple factor regression analysis, yes, things yes, like that, that yes. are used in, in econometrics and other areas, right? Yes. So, I mean, I have uh, been doing this is of course, kind of stuff I think you've seen me do uh, at the center. I imagine that's why you're bringing that up. But yes, so in some of the work that we do, actually just trying to figure out what is causing something to happen. Of course, then we run this regression with a couple factors in there, and then you get the coefficient C well. So a good example would be my report that I did on childcare. So uh, one of the issues we do have in Minnesota is that our childcare prices are through the roof. So because you, you tend to hear people say, oh, we need more money in there, the government has to do something without even trying to find out why our childcare prices are actually high, which is you know what I, I tried to do. So one of the factors, the variables I was trying to study there was regulation. So you know I regressed regulation against the price of childcare and then well, I found out that we have strict regulations that then raise the, child, the price of childcare. So, so you, you, you got your master's degree, uh, so you're at Troy now for six years, right? 
Uh, yes, yeah, so I left Troy in 2019. Well, I want to pause you there for a second, though, Martha, because in those six years, did you ever get back home to Africa? No, no, actually. Uh, so the first time I went back home was in 2022. So that was last year in May. I mean, as a student, of course, you don't have anything going on. And the tickets to Malawi are like 1000 to $2,000. So I had nothing like that on me. But then when I wanted to go back home finally in 2020, and then COVID came. Yeah, so. right. Well, so, but let's pick it up. So you got your master's degree and, and you saw, you know, you, you saw somewhere that American Experiment was looking to hire an economist mm -hmm. and uh, we interviewed you, right? And you came to work for American Experiment, what was it, 20? So I joined in October 2019, so at the very end there. I mean, I was actually specifically looking for a conservative or libertarian think tank, so that's that's why I applied for this job, so I'm glad I'm here. Well, we're glad yeah, you're here, too. Yeah. So it was at, toward the end of 2019 yeah. that you came to work for American Experiment. Well, now you're actually making some money so you can afford <laughs> to buy a plane ticket, right, to go back to Malawi. Yes. And then in 2020, you wanted to go back. COVID shut things down. You yeah. couldn't go back. And you finally uh, got back to see your family in 2020. Two. How long had you been gone at that point without without seeing your family? I had gone for nine years without seeing my family, and just to give some more, put this in context too. That when I when I left Malawi, I didn't have a cell phone for the like four years when I was in college, so I wasn't speaking very much to my family either before then. So this was like going back to a place <laughs> that was pretty much new, had changed so much at that point. So. Well, among other things, I think you had a little brother that you'd never seen, right? Yeah, yeah. So my brother. Uh, he's turning six in December, was born uh, somewhere in 2017. So, I mean, I was still in school then, about to graduate uh, from undergrad. So he was, yeah, I was here and haven't, hadn't seen him since he was born. I mean, I had gotten some pictures uh, a little sure. bit here and there. Sure. So when I actually, when I first saw him, the first thing he asked me was, who is your father? I mean, I guess because he's four and he has never seen me before. <laughs> so I had to go into detail explaining to him who I am and, you know, why I'm there. <laughs> right. Yeah, what are you doing? Here? Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. It's like, who is this so, person? <clears throat> so let's go back to your training as an economist. You studied Hayek and von Mises, people like that, the Austrian school, other free market economists. And obviously that changed your thinking about, about um well, let me back up from that even. So when you got to the United States, what did you think of us here? What did you think of America? Ah, it was such a huge change. <laughs> Everything was just different. Uh, but one thing, though, that I what, that stuck to me, at, at least at the very beginning, is because so when I was growing up, I didn't have a TV. So for uh, until maybe I was when I was a teenager, was I saw the first pictures of the United States when I was a teenager. And it was just a few pictures, too. And the thing about it, the U.S. is when you're outside of it, the pictures that you see is mostly like New York, L.A. And then I, I came here and then I'm going to Troy, Alabama, which is a small college town. Of course, I was like, wow, this is not what I was seeing on TV. This is so different. We only had like one Walmart. We had one movie theater that had like three movie screens. And then that was pretty much it <laughs> with the college. But culture wise, I think I was more shocked there because we have very different you know traditions and system so for example if i meet somebody who is older than me especially if they're a a man 
I usually have to bow down a little bit, you know, hold my hand out like this, you know, say hello, and ask them how, how not just how that person is, but how everybody at their house is. So it's, it becomes a whole conversation. Maybe so you can't just walk down the street no. in Malawi. If you uh, encounter somebody older than you, you've got to stop and pay your respects yeah. and actually talk to them. Yeah, you just can't pass somebody by. What a great system. Just, <laughs> I don't know about that. You waste a lot of time <laughs> greeting people. Well, as, as an older person, I think it sounds. Oh good. yeah, definitely yeah. So, so the culture, as you found it here in the United States, obviously less traditional. Yeah, very. So I actually had a few instances whereby I would meet somebody older, and then I would stop, you know, hold my hand out, you know, do the whole greeting conversation. And then most people would be like, hey, how are you? And then just pass by me. I was like, oh, what is this? <laughs> so it, it got me some time to get used to. But yes, it was a bit of a culture shock. So you mentioned that, that when you got your master's degree, you're looking for a job. You specifically wanted to work for a conservative or libertarian think tank. Well, why is that? How did your education push you in that direction? Yeah, so my, yeah, like like I said earlier, my school was very much Austrian, you know, free government, free enterprise, all of that stuff. So you le you read about Haig, the only thing you're going to get from there is, regardless of what it is, government needs to get out of the way, <laughs> you know, let the uh, private sector do its job. So that's, that's the message that I got to hear through my whole six years of uh, school. And it's not just, you know, learning this in the class. Of course, you, you see the evidence of it when you look at how most of the develop, developed countries have come to develop. Like the, like the United States is one of the freest countries in the world. And that's the reason that we are at this much level of prosperity compared to other places. So of course, when after I, I left uh, school, I was like, you know what? The government doesn't do as good as a job as I, as I, as I thought uh, it did. And when I was young too, the reason that I wanted to work so much for the government was because I didn't understand that the government doesn't create anything. All it does is it's taking taxes from the economy. So you don't need the government to be such a huge part of the economy because it's extractive. What you need is the private sector because it efficiently provides goods and services. So that's why I was specifically looking for an organization like that, that advocates for free enterprise, advocates for small government, because that's how you get you know, income growth, that's how you get economic growth, and that's how you get jobs created. That's how people make money, and that's how we get all of these high standards of living we have today. So, so there are some people, there are, there are some young Americans, Martha, your age, you know, more or less, who, who tell pollsters anyway that they would like to turn America into a socialist country. What do you, what do you think when you, when, you, when you see young people saying things like that? Hi, it, it breaks my heart, honestly. It's, I, I can't even explain it. Because, you know, growing up in Malawi, I mean, I know people tend to, you know, remember their childhood much, much happier that, than it is, which could be true for, for me in some cases, because I, I most often remember the playing, the hanging out with my aunts, my uncles, and all that. But behind that, there was a lot of uh, hardship for me growing up in Malawi because, uh, you know, every day that I woke up going to school, so primary school usually is for eight years, but I did it in seven years because I skipped a grade. But every day of that seven years, I was walking about two miles, which could be like 20, 30 minutes. 
going back, going to and back from school every day. Uh, and then every time I got sick, I had to go to the government hospital, which was also far away. That's another miles of walking could go to hospital. And then if I need drinking water, I had to walk miles to go get the drinking water. And mind you, if I'm coming back, I'm carrying this huge, heavy bucket of water on my head. And then we had no electricity in my house, um, you know, a couple wait, of wait, times. Wait, so, so in your house growing up, you had no electricity. We had no electricity. We had and no... you had, apparently had no running water because you had to, had to walk miles and carry water back on your head. Yes. So that, that is how I grew up. And even worse, like a couple of times during the year, it was very normal for us to go to bed hungry because we had no food. Uh, and this is true not just for me uh, growing up, but it's true for a lot of people. Even today, m- more than half of Malawians live that the way that I describe right now. And they live even worse because, especially if you don't have family living close to you, like how I, I did. If you're running, going through that kind of hardship, you just have to face through it alone. I was lucky enough because I had family uh, with me. So, you know, there's a lot of sharing that goes around. But the only reason that I lived through that kind of life, that kind of hardship, is because Malawi is a poor country. You know, uh, the GDP of Malawi is about, I think, $700, you know, GDP per capita, that is. But in the United States, it's about 60000 70000 I don't have the number off the top of my head. But you get the idea that Malawi is a poor country. And the reason that we are poor is because we don't have, we, we, we weren't lucky enough to have that system of government uh, that we have in the United States, which was created in the 1700s, the system that enabled people to innovate, to create businesses. You have a system of government here. At least it used, used to be yeah, true, right. you know, back in the day. They had a system that rewarded hard work, re- rewarded innovation, rewarded entrepreneurship. And that's really to thank for all of the, these uh, huge creations we've had, you know, companies like Apple, Amazon, all of these conveniences that we have up today. It's thanks to these entrepreneurs who took a risk because they knew that they could be rewarded because that's what the system was set out to do and that's what it did. But then we seem to be moving away from that system of government, you know, people want bigger and bigger government, which honestly, I don't think that's going to lead to anywhere good. And that's really why it's heartbreaking for me because I know life was very hard for me in Malawi and I, w- I wouldn't want anybody to live the kind of life I did. I mean, I was happy, but it was hard. And I think I'm afraid that if we go down this road of socialism that people want to have uh, in the U.S., that's not going to lead to anything good. No, you're certainly right about that. Let's, let's, let's wrap up, Martha, by just talking a little bit about the kinds of work that you've been doing at American Experiment. You, you wrote a, a big paper on child care that we published last year, and um, you, you've written a lot about regulation. You wrote about um, rent control. Rent yeah. control is one of those bad ideas that never seems to die, right? No, no. It it's... fails. <laughs> I think you wrote, didn't you write that the rent control, you can, you can trace rent control government uh, programs all the way back to the ancient Romans. Did I get that right? Yeah, we, we have run control through Egypt, Rome, you know, of course, the the reasons most behind it was, you know, mostly to punish maybe certain groups of people, keep them in certain areas and stuff like that. But yes, we do. We, you can see historically we had these rules, but what obviously happened at the end of the day was that you put a, a price cap, a price ceiling on rents, you know, the housing, su- housing supply goes down or it stays stagnant and then 
uh, all of a sudden people can find you know can find places to rent which and they is, can't figure out why yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. which and, and you and you testified against the proposed rent control ordinance in the Minneapolis City Council was it uh so I mean, I've written a lot about this here, but there wasn't anything f like a formal hearing at the uh, Minneapolis City Council or anything like that. But I mean, it's what I find very puzzling about this whole thing, too, especially in Minneapolis, is that we have St. Paul right across the river. Like they did the rain control. It was one of the strictest ordinances in the country. And then they've seen some disastrous consequences. And they were like, well, we need to change this thing and make it a little better so that people don't have to run away from the city. They can still build houses. And then Minneapolis, after seeing all of this, is still coming back saying, actually, we need a very strong rent control policy, <laughs> like the one that they did initially did in St. Paul. It's quite puzzling. So what me. you're learning, Martha, it's is a, that American liberals are not good at learning from experience. I yeah, it's like the, St. Paul is right there. You can literally go ask them. And yeah. you've written on a lot of things uh, in the in the years that you have been here. You've got a big paper that's going to be coming out soon. Tell us just a little bit about that. Yes, so I am really excited about this because I think this is the uh, very first time we take a hard look at our warfare program. So the idea behind this essentially is like, I think we heard for some of you who know, in the last session, there was a lot of spending that happened. You know, our whole $18 billion surplus went to a bunch of new government programs. But one of the biggest spending items in that uh, in, in those bills was warfare. So our state government, you know, our, some of our lawmakers, I wouldn't say it's this idea is comes from everyone, but there's this idea that we don't do enough for our needy, needy Minnesotans. We don't do enough to help low-income people in Minnesota. So because of that, they added a couple more billion dollars to our welfare programs. So this includes the, the cash assistance programs, child care, Medicaid, whatever it is, you name it, they've added more, more money to it. So essentially what I'm doing is looking at, uh, you know, trying to fact check this idea that we don't spend enough on poor people. So I'm looking through the numbers, trying to find out how much we spend per poor person in the state, how much we spend on welfare as a share of the budget, how much we compare to other states, but also more importantly, how much we compare to the past, just try to get this idea, the sense of, is this really true that we don't spend enough on poor people? And what you do get is that we actually do spend quite a lot and we spend even higher. We do rank at the top when you compare to other states. And this is, if, if you do either as a share of the budget or if you do per capita numbers, whatever way you spin the numbers, what you get is that Minnesota is a very generous state when it comes to warfare. Well, we are looking forward to seeing that report. It's going to be out soon. And Martha and Joel Amoli, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you, John. This was wonderful. <laughs>